The following lecture was recorded in a classroom-like setting in which only the lecture was recorded. Because of this, the participation of the classroom cannot be heard. When someone asks a question or makes a comment, there will be a brief break in the audio. Once the question or comment is finished, the lecturer will begin speaking again. Thank you for understanding, and we hope you enjoy the message. Yeah, good to get to see you all tonight. Let's go ahead and open up in prayer, and we'll get to it. All right, Father, thank you so much for blessing us with this evening and for gathering us together here tonight as a body. We pray that you would be glorified in our study tonight, that this would be a time of worship as we value you and, uh, and seek to obey you as we grow in our ability to give reasons for uh, what we believe and what you've already caused us to know to be true. We pray, Father, that you would, uh, as we uh, discuss these topics tonight, increase our own confidence in the truth and by your grace uh, equip us, make us better at uh, persuading others of this same truth too. Uh, you might make us better ambassadors for you and that through our reasoning with people as we see Paul doing in the book of Acts that many would come to believe the truth and by your grace you would make them born again and cause them to repent and believe and follow after you. We pray that you would do this for your glory in us. We pray you would do it out of your love for us. And we pray you would do it out of your love for all those in our lives who don't know you. Uh, help us, Father, to focus with them in mind tonight and to do our best to learn these things so that we can uh, better demonstrate the truth of your gospel to them. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, it's a blessing to get to be with you guys uh, tonight. This is, I think, session eight or session nine, maybe, of our Proving Christianity series. I know we have a few visitors with us tonight. Welcome. Um, the, uh, we're at the very end of our uh, teaching series on this, so um, there's, uh, if you're interested in uh, learning some of the other arguments that we've discussed or, uh, or how arguments work or the value of apologetics, what apologetics is, all those videos are online. Um, we are going to do a review exercise later on in the session tonight. Uh, by God's grace, I'm really hoping to get through the argument, unlike we did last time. Um, really hoping to get through the argument for tonight so that we'll save time for the review. But uh, even if you aren't familiar with the arguments we've already discussed, the review might still be informative for you um, as we'll uh, kind of go through some of the things we've learned at rapid speed. And hopefully if you still have any remaining questions, need additional clarification on stuff, uh, we can get that uh, for you tonight. Um, that said... The uh, session this evening is going to be focusing on a second argument, a second evidence for the truthfulness of Christianity specifically. So as we talked about earlier in our uh, time together, there are many different approaches to apologetics. There are many different ways that Christians have sought to give reasons for what we believe. The approach that we're learning in this class is what's called the classical approach. And the classical approach is a two-step approach. The first step is to prove the existence of God, of which we've learned three arguments. One argument from the uh, beginning of the universe, one argument from design, and one argument from morality. Um, the first step is to prove the existence of God, and the second step is to prove that the God who exists is, in fact, the God of the Bible. That it is the Christian God. It is the God who's revealed himself in the person of Jesus. And again, there are a number of different arguments for that. Uh, we learned one last time. That was what we call the legend, liar, lunatic, Lord argument. Um, Jesus claimed to be God. Um, those claims were either legendary embellishments, um, or they, went, or they were ones that he actually made. We saw that Jesus actually did claim that. Um, and, uh, and if somebody claims to be God, um, you only have a few options for making sense of that, right? Um, if they believe that claim and it's not true, then they're a lunatic, they're out of their mind. Um, if they don't believe that claim, but they're saying it anyway, then they're lying. Um, if, they, uh, if they're true, though, in what they're saying, 
then uh, in Jesus' case, he actually would be God, right? It's hard to consider him a liar, given his goodness. It's hard to consider him a lunatic, given his wisdom. Therefore, the only good option we're, we're left with for making sense for the historical person of Jesus is that he was, in fact, the Lord. So that's one argument uh, for the truthfulness of Christianity specifically. Now, the argument that we're going to learn tonight is, uh, is different. It's another historical argument, but it's an argument uh, not so much about how to make sense of the person of Jesus, even though it has him at the center of it. It's an argument about whether or not a particular event happened in human history. And that event is the resurrection of Christ. Now, the first question that you'll see on your handout, and I would encourage you when you have this, uh, when you, if you uh, share this argument with, uh, with people in your life who don't know Christ, to start with these questions in that order. The first question that we're going to ask, and I would recommend you ask the person you're talking to, is whether or not the resurrection of Jesus matters. Does it matter if Jesus rose from the dead? And then the second question, of course, is did it actually happen? Right? So the first, is to, the first uh, task that we have is to determine the significance, the importance, the meaning of this event. And then the second task is to determine the historicity of it. I see my mom. Are you laughing at me? Is there something? Okay. If there's something like... Okay, good. There was a fly one time. I was flying around. If there's something like that, you can just tell me. All right, so let's, uh, let's address the first question. Does the resurrection of Jesus matter? Uh, now, most I've, I've drawn a lot from William Lane Craig in this uh, teaching series. Um, I'm primarily tonight going to draw from a scholar named Gary Habermas. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with him, uh, Dr. Habermas is a distinguished research professor of apologetics and philosophy at Liberty University. He may be the world's foremost scholar on the historicity of the resurrection today, at least just in terms of being aware of where the uh, uh, field of critical scholars stands on the topic of Jesus' resurrection today. Um, and uh, the arguments that I'm going to be sharing with you tonight are, uh, are coming primarily from him. They're either based off his works, drawing from it, um, sometimes I'll be quoting explicitly. Sometimes I'll be quoting him uh, without even telling you I'm quoting him. Um, he, uh, uh, there, there, there's three works specifically that, um, that if you're interested in, you can go on and look at more. Uh, one is an essay, actually a chapter that he wrote in a book um, called the, uh, the, the, the chapter was called The Case for Christ's Resurrection. The book is To Everyone an Answer. Um, uh, another essay which was helpful is, uh, is an article that was published actually in the Journal for the Study of the Historical Jesus. That essay was the resurrection research from 1975 to the present, what are critical scholars saying. And then he also co-authored a popular book on the resurrection, perhaps the most popular book on the topic, um, with uh, Mike Lacona. And that book was called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. So a lot of what you're hearing tonight is coming from these things, even though I'm going to frame the argument uh, perhaps a little bit differently than he does. So let's, uh, let, let's ask first, I'll, I'll ask you guys before we, um, before we move any further, do you think that the resurrection of Jesus is important? Is it important if Jesus rose from the dead? All right, why is it important? Okay, so it's important for us as Christians, right? Um. Are there any passages in Scripture you can think of that might lend us? Yeah. So 1 Corinthians 15, 
in verses 17 through 19, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died, have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's pretty bad. All the people in the world, Christians, are most to be pitied if Jesus didn't actually, historically, bodily rise from the dead. Paul's not the only person who says this. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, says that we're born again through the resurrection to an eternal inheritance. Obviously, if the resurrection did not happen, there is no being born again and there is no eternal inheritance that we have to look forward to. This is what Peter says in verses 3 through 4 of chapter 1. He says, According to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's what's awaiting the church, but we only get to receive that because of our participation in the resurrection of Jesus. It's through the resurrection of Jesus that we're raised to life with him to that eternal inheritance that Peter talks about. So as Christians, the resurrection is important. Um, It's not just important as a matter of the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, There are certain things like, you know, what was the name of David's first son that if, you know, it was a different name, it wouldn't have, it it would impact the inerrancy of Scripture, but it wouldn't necessarily in and of itself, have a, a, be of, of substantial concern to us, right? The resurrection of Jesus, though, isn't just a matter of whether or not the scriptures are inerrant. It's of substantial concern to Christians. Our salvation hinges on Jesus' resurrection. Now, let me ask you this. Is it an important question for skeptics to answer? Does the resurrection of Jesus matter for unbelievers? Does it have any apologetic value? It's a little bit more difficult of a question. If Jesus was raised from the dead, does it prove anything? Does it demonstrate anything? So, yeah, it could prove that he's God. Yeah, is there a specific way that it might prove that, it's God, that he's God? I agree with you. That's okay. We'll, we'll see in just a second. Oh, sorry, go ahead, man. Yeah. Any ideas? Okay. Yeah, so when we think about whether the resurrection of Jesus matters, from an apologetic standpoint, it matters a great deal, number one, because if it happened, it would be a miracle. Right? And uh, I don't actually have one of the handouts in front of me. I want to make sure I'm following along with uh, you guys. Actually, let's pull it up really quick. If I miss one of the blanks on accident, just tell me. He can fill it in. So if it happened, it would be a miracle. What is a miracle? Uh, This is a definition I got from my Christian philosophy class in seminary. I think it was either attributed to C.S. Lewis or maybe derived from C.S. Lewis. I don't know. It's it's a good definition, though. Um, A miracle, quote, is an attesting event that is the result of a suspension of the laws of nature by God in order to give credibility to a particular message given by a particular messenger. 
So a miracle is something that God does. It can't be explained in terms of natural laws. can only be explained in terms of some kind of supernatural cause. And that supernatural event is intended to validate somebody as a messenger of God. There was a helpful example that I would encourage you to learn when you're sharing this with people. Um, in, uh, in a book that Norman Geisler and Frank Turek wrote together, they gave an example of, uh, of how in, in times past when kings would send a, a letter to somebody, if they wanted that person to know for sure that the letter came from a king, they would do what with that letter? They would mark it with a seal, right? And the king's seal was significant because it was something unique to that king. And when somebody received it, they knew that the letter that they had received must have come from that king. They write this in their book, quote, Of course, to make the system work, the seal needed to be unusual or unique, easily recognizable, and it had to be something only the king possessed. You see the analogy to a miracle now. They say God could use a similar system to authenticate his messengers. Specifically, he could use miracles. Miracles are unusual and unique, easily recognizable, and only God can do them. So like a king's seal, a miracle is God's seal on his messages and or specifically his messengers. Jesus performed many miracles in his lifetime, as did the apostles, as did some of the prophets before them. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. It's actually very sad in that passage. They had just witnessed an exorcism before the scene. Now they're asking him for a sign. Verse 39, Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he says in verse 40, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's saying, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried for three days. And three days later, I'm going to rise and live again. He says, this is the sign for you. This, the, resur- the resurrection is like a climactic miracle. It's like the miracle of miracles. Why is this significant? Well, if we can demonstrate that Jesus actually rose from the dead, that he performed perhaps the greatest miracle that anybody could perform, beating death itself, then that would be a clear sign to us that Jesus was validated by God. Jesus was a true messenger from God. Therefore, what he said is true. And since he claimed to be God in the flesh and he claimed that the Bible was God's word, he must be God and the Bible must be God's word. So the first way that the resurrection is important apologetically is that if it happened, it would be a miracle. Any questions on that? Does that make sense? It would validate Jesus as a true messenger of God and therefore what Jesus taught, the fact that he was God and the Bible is God's word, would be true and therefore Christianity is true. There's another reason though why the resurrection may be apologetically significant. Unlike an ordinary miracle like healing a person who can't walk, making a lame person walk, making a deaf person hear, giving sight to the blind, casting out demons, those are all great miracles. They can all validate somebody as a messenger of God, right? The resurrection in and of itself carries perhaps some additional theological significance beyond just any 
ordinary miracle. If the resurrection happened, it could be a vindication of Jesus. That's the word for you. The resurrection may also be Jesus' vindication. I want you to think about this for a second. Any person rising from the dead would be pretty cool, right? If George Washington rose from the dead, that would be neat. But it wouldn't necessarily prove that he was God, right? Unless perhaps maybe he claimed to be a prophet and maybe claimed that as a messenger of God, he was telling people that he was God and this miracle validated that. Of course he didn't, so that wouldn't have been true for him. But there's something special about Jesus' resurrection. That What's special is the context of it. It's the circumstances surrounding it that make it perhaps even more meaningful than an ordinary miracle. If you can't say such a thing, talking about an ordinary miracle. Why did Jesus die? That was a question. Why did Jesus die? Why was he put to death? I'm not talking about God's plan, him dying as a substitute for our sins, which is true. Why, in the course of history, did Jesus end up getting crucified? Do you remember what the charge was? It was blasphemy, right? And what blasphemous claim was Jesus making? Yeah, he was claiming to be God. Essentially, he didn't use those words, but the Jews understood him to be saying something slanderous, saying something derogatory about God. And it was that he was essentially making himself equal with God. He was claiming in Mark chapter 14, which I'll read to you in just a second. Actually, I'll just read it to you right now. Mark 14, starting in verse 55, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. Verse 60, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He was claiming to be the divine figure that Daniel prophesied about in Daniel chapter 7. A divine figure who Jesus was claiming to be, the high priest responds to in verse 63 by tearing his garments and saying, quote, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. And of course, they were not in that, for those reasons, able to capitally punish somebody, so they handed him over to the Romans to have him crucified under Pontius Pilate. Um, as we talked about last week, even if you're taking a very critical stance towards the New Testament documents, um, and even if you're using certain criteria for authenticity to establish what Jesus said on, on historical grounds, um, it's clear that we get a portrait of a man who viewed himself as standing in the place of God. He saw himself as having God's authority in a way that implies unity with God, one in essence with God. He viewed himself as being God in the flesh. And he was put to death for those claims. They were deemed blasphemous by the Jews. Now, the interesting thing is that Peter, 
on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 contrasts what the Jews did. One possible meaning of this passage is that he's contrasting what the Jews did to Jesus with what God did to Jesus after his death. Listen to what Peter says. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So one of the things that comes out in this passage is the contrast between you, the Jews, what you did, and God, what he did. You crucified him, you handed him over to lawless men, but God raised him up from the dead. God raised him up. And you see this contrast actually in other places in the book of Acts 2. You killed him, God raised him. As one commentator said, quote, the contrast between God's exaltation of Jesus and the attitude of those who oppose Jesus is a central aspect of the apostolic preaching. He says, Jesus' resurrection was his ultimate accreditation and vindication as God's servant and Messiah. Let's think about this for a second. If Jesus was a false prophet, if he was a messianic pretender, and he was put to death for blasphemy, other messianic pretenders ended their lives ended in premature death too. Um, it would be easier to write him off as a phony, right? But if God raised Jesus from the dead, that would be one of the greatest ways that God could demonstrate that he did not believe Jesus deserved to die. That the Jews' actions were unjust. Him raising Jesus from the dead contrasts with the uh, contrasts starkly with the Jews' attitude toward Jesus. They saw him as a blasphemer. They condemned him to death. God raising him from the dead contrasts God's disposition towards Jesus with the Jews' disposition towards Jesus. God did not see Jesus as a blasphemer. He did not see him as someone guilty of death. Guilty and deserving of death, rather. Wolfhat Pandenberg writes this. He says, quote, The resurrection of Jesus acquires such decisive meaning not merely because someone or anyone has been raised from the dead, but because it is Jesus of Nazareth, whose execution was instigated by the Jews because he had blasphemed against God. If this man was raised from the dead, then that plainly means that the God whom he had supposedly blasphemed has committed himself to Jesus. The resurrection can only be understood as the divine vindication of the man whom the Jews had rejected as a blasphemer. God's resurrection of Jesus clears Jesus the false allegations that were made against him. If Jesus was a blasphemer, if he was a false prophet, God certainly would not have raised him from the dead. Now, this is apologetically significant because if God did not deem the actions of the Jews just, if God did not think Jesus was guilty, then what does that mean about Jesus? It means he was not a blasphemer. It means he was telling the truth, that he really was who he claimed to be. He really was God in the flesh. So the resurrection matters because it could also be a vindication of Jesus, a vindication of the man who was put to death for blasphemy. God raising him contrasted his disposition towards Jesus 
against the Jews' disposition towards Jesus. He did not see Jesus as the blasphemer, as the messianic pretender, or perhaps the false prophet that the Jews did. Which means that if Jesus was not a blasphemer, he was telling the truth. He really was God in the flesh, and the Bible really was God's word, which is what he said, in which case Christianity is true. So, are we clear on the two reasons why the resurrection matters? The first is because it's a miracle, and the second is because it could also be Jesus' vindication by God. Both of those lead to the conclusion that Jesus was a true messenger of God, and thus God in the flesh, if it's a miracle, or if he's vindicated that he was who he claimed to be. Also God in the flesh. So yes, the resurrection is very important for us as Christians. It's essential to the gospel and to our salvation, but it also has great apologetic value for us. If we can demonstrate that this actually happened, then we can prove that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that he was God and that the Bible is God's word. Any questions on those two points? If you have questions, make sure you ask. Now's the time. All right, so... The second question we need to answer. Why did I write what? It's all right. I'm going to change the color. Second, are, did you guys, are all of the blanks filled in on the handouts? I'll take that as a yes. So the second question we have to ask is, did it happen? Was Jesus actually raised from the dead? Historically, did this really happen? I like the way uh, Gary Habermas puts it. I don't think I have this on your hand up, but I would encourage you to write this down. This is a helpful way, I think, to share this with people. If the New Testament documents are Scripture, then Jesus was raised from the dead. If the New Testament documents are not Scripture, but they're historically reliable, then Jesus was raised from the dead. If the New Testament documents are not historically reliable and we mine them using a historical method to ascertain which facts within them are historically reliable, then guess what? Jesus was raised from the dead. No matter which view you take, the conclusion is the same. Jesus was raised from the dead. How is that the case? Well, obviously the first one, if the New Testament documents are God's word, they're inerrant and they're infallible and they teach that Jesus rose from the dead, so obviously Jesus did rise from the dead. The second one, if the Gospels are, or the New Testament documents are generally reliable historically. If they might be wrong in some areas, but they're right on the big things, which you can actually make a good case for. And some people do that by you know, pointing to um, all of the ways that um, you know, the, uh, the book of Acts is, uh, um, includes facts which are attested through archaeology or, uh, or other historical sources. And they'll do something similar with the Gospel of John, how, uh, how some of those facts are at least uh, possible or corroborated by other sources. Um, and uh, you know how their early sources, eyewitness testimony, you know they were intending to write history, all these things. You can make a good case for them being generally reliable historically, which means that even if they might be wrong in some areas, at least in the big areas, like Jesus claiming to be God and dying on a cross and rising from the dead, we would expect it to be right in. But even if you take the most critical stance possible towards the New Testament documents, even if you say they're not generally reliable historically, and we only want to go with the facts that can be established on critical grounds using criteria of authenticity 
to determine which facts we can accept with a level, a, with a, uh, with a appropriate level of, of, uh, of confidence. Even if you take that approach, the amazing thing is that the fact, one of the facts accepted by almost all critical scholars today is enough, I think, to demonstrate that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So that's, that's the argument that we're going to, to learn. Um, I had some more facts here about how to prove it the other way, but I'll, for time's sake, I'll, I'll pass those up. Um, so the, uh, this approach is sometimes called a minimal facts approach. The name is appropriate because you're working with the facts that are accepted by almost all scholars, regardless of whether they're Christian or secular, working with the, 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 the facts, the minimal facts that are agreed on by basically everybody, that enjoy a virtually unanimous consensus among scholars today, regardless of their theological or religious backgrounds. Now, uh, it's important when you frame this argument to make sure that you're referring to scholars. So when we uh, so when, when the, some of the, uh, the facts I'm going to share with you tonight, when we're talking about, um, you know, this is what critical scholars agree with, um, you will find people that, that disagree with these things, um, but, uh, but they're not going to be scholars that disagree with them. Uh, for example, you can find somebody online um, who, uh, who, you know, will deny that Jesus ever existed, right? But that's not a, that's not a, uh, a view that's, that's held in scholarly circles, um, the, uh, the vast majority of scholars um, agree that Jesus was a real person. Um, so just because you can find somebody who disagrees with these things um, doesn't mean that their opinion carries, carries any kind of authority, right? What we want to know is um, the people who are publishing in this field, um, uh, New Testament scholars, historians, theologians, philosophers, people that are, that are, uh, that are actually working on this subject, that study in this subject, um, what is their consensus? What is their perspective um, on, uh, on which facts we can, uh, we can believe are historical? Um, in, uh, in the 2005 article, uh, Resurrection Research from 1975 to the Present, that I mentioned from Habermas, he said, quote, Since 1975, more than 1,400 scholarly publications on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus have appeared. Over the last five years, I have tracked these texts, which were written in German, French, and English, well over 100 subtopics are addressed in the literature, almost all of which I have examined in detail. Most of the critical scholars are theologians or New Testament scholars, while a number of philosophers and historians, among other, the, uh, among other fields, are also included. In other words, um, he's, uh, he's very well versed in his field, keeping track on, uh, on, uh, uh, on what the scholarly view is on, uh, on um, certain uh, proposed events that took place after Jesus' death. So here's the most important fact for us to remember and learn how to defend. This single fact, I think, is enough, as you'll see, hopefully by the end of tonight, to prove that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. So here's the fact. The early followers of Jesus, and I don't know if I wrote this down for you. If I didn't, make sure you write, write it down. The early followers of Jesus... genuinely believed that 
They saw him alive after his death. That might not seem like much to you, but it's huge. And I'll show you why in just a minute. Habermas writes, quote, with few exceptions, the fact that after Jesus' death, his followers had experiences that they thought were appearance of the risen Jesus is arguably one of the two or three most recognized events from the four Gospels, along with Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God and his death by crucifixion. He says, few critical scholars reject the notion that after Jesus' death, the early Christians had real experiences of some sort. He says, as we have mentioned throughout, there are certainly disagreements about the nature of the experiences, but it is still crucial that the nearly unanimous consent, do you hear that? The nearly unanimous consent of critical scholars is that in some sense, the early followers of Jesus thought that they had seen the risen Jesus. Almost unanimous is the consensus among critical scholars today. Whether they're secular, whether they're Christian, whether they believe in the Bible as God's word or they don't, whether they believe Jesus rose from the dead or they don't, the consensus today, again, virtually unanimous, is that the early followers of Jesus at least thought that they had seen the risen Jesus. How many of you have heard that before? Heard that fact before? Some of you? So again, this is something that is recognized, this fact is recognized by almost everyone, even by many of the more skeptical researchers. They might disagree about a lot of things, but again, the vast majority of scholars today, not some random person on an internet forum, scholars today agree on this. How come they agree on this? How do we know that this actually happened historically? I have three C's for you. You know I like uh, acronyms. This isn't really an acronym. Alliteration, I guess, all C's. So how, how do we know that the early followers of Jesus genuinely believed they saw him alive after his death? What, what evidence would lead to such a unanimous conclusion among critical scholars today? The first is conversions. And specifically, the conversions of Paul and James. You say, why does that have to do anything? This may surprise you. Habermas says, quote, In contemporary critical studies, the Apostle Paul is almost always thought to be the best witness among the New Testament writers. Did you know that? Again, in critical circles, we believe that the Bible's God's word, so we believe that all of the Gospels are valuable from a historical standpoint. But in critical scholarly circles, it's not the Gospels that are uh, viewed primarily or studied primarily for the purpose of understanding what happened after Jesus' death, if he really rose from the dead. It's actually Paul's writings that are studied the most. You'll understand why in just a second. But aside from that, Habermas says, uh, he's talking about how Paul's thought to be the best witness among the New Testament writers to the resurrection. He says, quote, a former opponent of this message, Paul clearly points out that the risen Jesus appeared to him personally. And Paul makes this claim more than once, he says. So one example of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Paul says, have I not seen our Lord? 
And actually in 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll get to in a second, Paul also talks about how Jesus appeared to him too. And I think it's in that part he may talk about how Jesus appeared to him as one who was untimely born. Um, more than once, Paul says, Jesus appeared to me. And obviously, you know this, Habermas writes, we also have corroboration of Paul's testimony from another New Testament author who retells the story three times. What author is that? Luke, right, in the book of Acts. We've heard Paul's conversion story now in our, so we've been working through the book of Acts, thrice, repeated three times by somebody other than Paul. Now, this is significant because Paul was what? What was Paul before he became the apostle that we know him and love him to be? He was a Pharisee, and he was a persecutor of the church. He was an enemy of the church. And speaking of the scholarly consensus, I think, Habermas says, quote, the data behind the fact of Paul's conversion from being an enemy of the church are recognized by all. There needs to be a reason for this brilliant young scholar being convinced against his former beliefs and persecution of believers. And Paul's reason is very clear, he says. He was persuaded that he had seen the risen Lord. How do we make sense of the fact that a Pharisee, a Jewish Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, came to change his way of thinking and came to switch from being a persecutor of this group to being a member of this group himself? Well, the reason that Paul gives for it is that Jesus appeared to him. Now again, scholars aren't saying that um, not all scholars are saying that Jesus actually appeared to Paul. They're just saying that Paul at least thought Jesus appeared to him. That's an important fact to recognize in order to make sense of Paul's conversion. And so Paul's conversion is proof that at least some of the early followers of Jesus genuinely believed they saw him alive. Paul was an example of that. He's a recognized example of that. Another recognized example of that is James. Who is James? Remember who James was? Jesus' younger brother. And he was probably a skeptical younger brother. Right? What does John tell us in his gospel in John 7? He says, not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. Now, there's various criteria of authenticity that critical scholars will use um, and, uh, and that lead them to the conclusion that what John says is correct, that James was not a believer in Jesus. And then it says, Habermas says, quote, it is seldom questioned by critical scholars that James, Jesus' brother, was an unbeliever and probably a skeptic during his brother's public ministry. Then, just a few years later, James is the pastor of the Jerusalem church, where Paul finds him when he went for his two visits. What happened? What could explain this conversion? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to James too. Uh, Habermas references a, he's referencing a different scholar here named uh, Reginald Fuller. And he writes, quote, Fuller concludes that even if the pre-Pauline creed in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 had never been recorded, we're going to look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, just a second. This scholar says, quote, we should have to invent, end quote, an appearance of James to justify both his occurrence, his, his conversion, as well as promotion to the pastor in Jerusalem, the largest of the early churches. The majority of scholars, including many skeptics, agree that James was converted by Jesus' appearance to him. Again, I want to be clear, not all the scholars believe that the appearance was an actual bodily resurrection of Jesus. They believe some, as we'll see in a little bit, 
believe that it was a vision, maybe a hallucination or something like that. But they agree that in order to explain, or it's, uh, they, they agree at least that James's conversion was a result of him believing that he saw Jesus alive. Even if we didn't have Paul's statement about Jesus appearing to James, as one scholar said, it's almost like we would have to invent an appearance in order to make sense of how the younger skeptical brother of Jesus turned around not only to believing him, but to then leading the largest church in Jerusalem. So, the conversions of Paul and of James are historical facts that entail this big fact for us, which is that the early followers of Jesus genuinely believed they saw him alive after his death. Any questions on that? Obviously, their conversions are instances, recognized instances by scholars of people, or these people, because of their conversions, are recognized instances of early followers of Jesus who genuinely believed they saw him alive after his death. No questions on conversions? The next C for you then is creed. Say, that's weird. By creed, I'm referring to an ancient oral tradition that we have recorded for us in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians 15. Many scholars recognize the material here in 1 Corinthians 15 as an ancient creed, an early oral tradition that goes back to the very uh, to the very beginning of the church, or at least to the early days or, or early years of the church, and that this tradition is recorded by Paul for us here in 1 Corinthians 15. This is a very significant tradition. It's a very significant creed because it actually translates to even more resurrection appearances. Yes, it talks about Paul, and yes, it talks about James, but as we'll see in a second, this creed also leads to the conclusion that there was a resurrection appearance to Peter and to groups of people. We'll read the passage together. Let's see. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3. This is Paul writing. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What did Paul receive? Here's the creed. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So he lists all these people that Jesus appeared to. And again, the scholar Reginald Fullard said, quote, it is almost universally agreed today that Paul is here citing tradition, that this is material that was delivered to him by someone else that he received by someone else, and that this material goes back very early. Sirius Habermas again, he says, Paul provides a straightforward explanation that he delivered to his audience what he had first received from others. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 3. And he says this is the equivalent, these are the equivalent terms for passing rabbinic tradition to others. He also says, besides this clear declaration of his actions, there are many other indications that this is exactly what's happening here. So he says the sentence structure, diction, 
verbal, parallel, uh, verbal parallelism, the threefold sequence of, quote, and that, and that, and that, as well as the presence of several non-Pauline words and the proper names of Cephas and James, um, and indications that there may have been an Aramaic original to this, all point clearly to this tradition being pre-Pauline. He says, critical scholars agree that Paul received it from others. So this is not Paul, this is not like the rest of 1 Corinthians, where Paul's writing it himself to the church. What he's including here in 1 Corinthians 15 is actually an oral tradition. You can call it a creed, perhaps, creedal material that goes back before Paul, that Paul received from others. Habermas says the most popular view, quote, the most popular view among scholars is that Paul first received this very early material when he visited Jerusalem just three years after his conversion. He visited Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, both of whom are listed as having seen the risen Jesus. Here's the passage that they're referring to in Galatians 1. In verse 18, Paul says, After three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So the most popular view among scholars today, we don't know this for certain, but the most popular view at least is that Paul received this oral tradition, he received this creed that we have in 1 Corinthians 15, when he went up to Jerusalem after three years and met with Peter and James, that they, he may have gotten this tradition from them. Habermas says, most of the critical scholars who date these events conclude that Paul received this material within just a few years after Jesus' death in the early or mid-30s. So Jesus was crucified in either 30 A.D. or 33 A.D. And uh, this creed goes back to within a few years after Jesus' crucifixion. This is, again, what most critical scholars who attempt to date these events believe today. Um, one of the reasons why that's important is because it means that these, this idea that the early followers of Jesus um, believe they saw him alive. Uh, it wasn't a legendary embellishment. This was very early on part of the, part of the teaching. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that not only is, it, not only is the most popular view that Paul received this from Peter and James when he went to Jerusalem, um, Paul also had subsequent interactions with Peter and James, um, along with the Apostle John, too. Uh, one of those interactions is indicated to us in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul may have gone specifically for the purpose of making sure that he wasn't preaching the gospel in vain, that they were preaching the same gospel. The apostles there were preaching the same gospel. <coughs> and of course, Paul's there in Acts 15, which some think might be the same event as Galatians 2 for the Jerusalem council. Um, and, uh, and this is significant, the fact that Paul had subsequent interactions, meetings with Peter and with James is significant because if this is, if this is Paul's creed, if this is the summary of the gospel, that means that there's multiple opportunities for this to be tested, right, by Paul or by Peter and by James um, in Paul's second visit and possibly in his third visit if the Jerusalem Council is a separate visit that's taking place. Historian Martin Hengel said, quote, evidently the tradition of 1 Corinthians 15.3 had been subjected to many tests. Um, so, the, uh, again, this is significant because if Paul, if, uh, if Peter or James did not think that what Paul was teaching was correct, there were opportunities for them to correct it. Instead, there not only lack of correction, but uh, joining, giving Paul the right hand of fellowship with them, um, 
aside from the fact that they may have been the ones who gave it to them in the first place, uh, assures that Paul's testimony about Peter and uh, Peter and James uh, having Jesus appear to them was also affirmed by Peter and James. So it translates to even more early followers of Jesus believing that they saw him alive. Because now we don't just have Paul and James, we also have Peter. And if James is validating, if Peter and James are validating this, then the other experiences reported there, Jesus' appearance to the disciples, to the apostles, to the group of 500, um, those are also uh, more likely too, especially the ones that they would have been part of, right? So here's what Abraham says. He says it probably more clearly than me. He says, the four men who met together on the latter occasion were certainly the chief apostles in the early church, and each one had been an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection appearances. He's talking about Peter, James, John, and Paul. He says, therefore, when Paul received their confirmation that his gospel was correct, we have their assurance that Paul's message of Jesus' resurrection appearances agreed with their own experiences. Paul passed their examination regarding his gospel proclamation. Their blessings assume their own eyewitness testimony concerning Jesus' resurrection appearances since they had also experienced Jesus. So their blessing, Paul's message, is them affirming that the resurrection appearances, which Paul says happened to them, actually did happen to them. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, thus, from this early creed, we arrive at the conclusion that um, the resurrection appearances occurred to more people than just Paul and James, but also to Peter and to the other groups that Peter and or James would have been a part of. Um, and the fact that there were given multiple opportunities for this creed to be tested and corrected by them makes us more confident in it, aside from the fact that it may have been given to Paul by Peter and James in the first place. So anyway, this uh, creed in 1 Corinthians 15 is very, very significant in scholarly circles. Um, and the, uh, the agreement of this creed with the apostolic leadership translates to more eyewitness testimonies too. Um, so just like the conversions, this creed is one other historical fact that leads to this big historical fact, which is that the early followers of Jesus genuinely believed they saw him alive after his death. Paul either received this creed from Peter and James, which means that obviously Peter and James believed they had seen Jesus, or Paul had multiple opportunities to confirm the information in this creed with Peter and James, which again means that Peter and James believed they saw Jesus. And not only did Peter and James believe that, but in the creed it talks about Jesus appearing to groups which they may have been a part of, meaning that those appearances also happen to groups too. So just by these two, you're probably saying, wow, I can, I can see why there's such a historical consensus on this today, regardless of somebody's theological background, whether they're a secular or a Christian scholar. Again, uh, this is a conclusion that enjoys almost a universal consensus in scholarly circles today. The last one's more brief. The last C for you is changed. The disciples were clearly changed by their belief in the resurrection. Habermas says, subsequent to Jesus' death by crucifixion, his disciples were radically transformed from fearful, cowering individuals who denied and abandoned Jesus at his rest and execution into bold proclaimers of the gospel of the risen Lord. And he says they remained steadfast in the face of imprisonment, 
torture and martyrdom. This kind of drastic change in somebody's life is difficult to explain if what they said they didn't truly believe. They said that they're different now. They're no longer afraid. They're no longer cowering people who abandoned Jesus as uh, Habermas was talking about. They're no longer heartbroken disciples who lost their cherished master, right? They're believing, they're out boldly proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead, even though it means torture, even though it means suffering. And for some of them, it meant death. They were even willing to lay down their lives for this. That kind of change can't be accounted for if we don't, if we don't accept, can't be well accounted for if we don't accept the disciples at least genuinely believed that what they were saying was true, that they had really seen Jesus. Again, critical scholars don't all agree that they actually did see Jesus, but they do all agree that the disciples at least genuinely believed that they saw Jesus. So you have three facts which lead to one big one. The conversions of Paul and James, the early creed we have in 1 Corinthians 15, and the radical transformation in the disciples' lives all lead to the same conclusion that the disciples at least believed that they saw Jesus alive from the dead. Habermas says this is granted by virtually all critical scholars because the data are extraordinarily strong. All right, any questions on the fact? The fact undergirded by these three other facts we've discussed. No questions? Okay. So in a resurrection argument, as Craig says, there's two steps, at least the way he does it, there's two steps. I think this is good. The first step is to explain the facts. And that's what we've done. Explain the facts. The most important fact, really the only fact that we're considering is that the disciples believed they saw Jesus. And by the way, you don't even have to give all of these reasons if you're sharing this with somebody. You can just tell them that almost all scholars today agree that the disciples at least believe they saw Jesus. And if they say, well, how do scholars know that? Then you can talk about the conversions, the creed in 1 Corinthians 15, and the transformation of the disciples' lives, how they were changed. But that may not even be necessary. People should probably... It's, uh, it's pretty significant in and of itself that almost all scholars, regardless of their theological or religious backgrounds, acknowledge that fact. So again, the first, the first thing we have to do is explain what the facts are. And then the second is, what is the best explanation for these facts? How do we explain the fact, and it is a fact, that the disciples believe they saw Jesus? What is the best explanation? It's an important word. We can come up with all kinds of explanations. Maybe Jesus was taken up by a UFO. Maybe he was abducted by aliens, right? That's a possible explanation. And he was shown down and light upon the disciples. Is that a good explanation? No, right? What is the best explanation? The fact that the early disciples believed they saw Jesus. Here's the amazing thing. Right, yeah, that's another evidence that they were sincere about it, right? 
Yeah, Mary's another person, actually. Mary Magdalene is another person that some people, um, uh, that there might be some, uh, uh, some evidence that, that scholars look at from her. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, uh, the interesting thing, one of the reasons why I really like this argument, and you'll probably appreciate it more in just a second. Maybe you're saying right now, all right, this fact, isn't that impressive that the early disciples genuinely believe this? It's a very impressive fact. Um, and the reason why is because this fact is extremely difficult I would say impossible to explain in any kind of naturalistic way. I'm going to show you that here in just a second. Habermas says that the claim to which virtually all scholars agree is a visual claim. The disciples were sure that Jesus' person had impinged on their visual field. This is what Paul claimed. Peter agreed. So did Jesus' brother James. As a result, they were changed forever. Some kind of visual experience. They were so convinced that they had. They were so convinced that they saw with their eyes Jesus physically, bodily raised from the dead. That again, they were willing to suffer and even lay down their lives for. Um, A few preliminary objections before we consider some of the naturalistic explanations for this, which are, you'll see... um, absolutely absurd. Uh, Some preliminary objections. What if these ideas are, you know, really just legendary embellishments? How do we know that, you know, the early church didn't just make up this idea that the disciples believed they saw Jesus alive? What do you think? This shouldn't be hard to answer. What fact did we just learn? Habermas says we can rule out the theory that the resurrection story was a legend that developed over time and was not actually taught by the original disciples since we can establish that those original disciples sincerely believed that the risen Jesus had appeared to them and taught it within a very short period of time after his crucifixion. Again, the single fact that we just learned that early followers of Jesus genuinely believed they saw him alive rules out the possibility that this was a fabrication of later Christians. This is what the early followers of Jesus genuinely believed. Well, what if they were lying about their experiences? What if they made it all up? This is, uh, was a view that I don't think is uh, uh, defended by many scholars. Say the conspiracy theory, the disciples stole the body, they made up the resurrection. And I think as Craig puts it, Christianity is essentially the greatest hoax of all time, right? How do we know that's, how do we know they weren't lying, Bran? <clears throat> yeah. Exactly. So we know they weren't lying because part of the fact that, again, is almost universally accepted by scholars today is that the disciples sincerely believe this happened, right? 
So it wasn't a later embellishment. It's not legendary. They weren't lying. Those aren't options. And again, scholars today, I don't know of any scholars that defend the view that, uh, that the resurrection was a conspiracy and the disciples were lying. That may be out there. Again, the virtual consensus is that the disciples were sincere about their belief that they had seen Jesus. Um, another preliminary objection is that miracles just can't happen, right? Miracles can't happen, so it doesn't seem how likely it is that, you know, the disciples saw Jesus. That kind of thing just doesn't happen, right? Dead people stay dead. They don't rise. What's the response to that? Why can't miracles happen? That's a philosophical assumption. It's not a historical assumption. It's a philosophical assumption that's rooted primarily, or most oftentimes, in naturalism, that the natural world is all that, that exists. If God exists, then that means that miracles are possible. If it's even possible that God exists, which most people will concede it's at least possible, then it means it's also possible that miracles could happen. Why would we say that miracles can't happen? Another preliminary objection is that we can't know what happened. Yes, the disciples believed they saw Jesus alive, but we can't know for sure why they believed that. And the question is, why not? How come we can't know why that happened? If you're going to make a claim like that, as Habermas says, the burden of proof is on you. You're going to have to prove why we can't know what caused the disciples' belief that they saw Jesus. You can't prove that, by the way. So, if miracles are possible, if it's possible to know what happened, if the disciples weren't lying, these aren't legendary embellishments, then that means we're going to have to try to deal with this fact in some way. The disciples genuinely believed they saw Jesus alive. We're going to have to come up with some kind of naturalistic explanation for this. The naturalistic explanations are not good, and that's part of what makes this argument, I think, very compelling. Um, and in fact, today, uh, many scholars uh, don't, uh, to my knowledge, many scholars who don't believe Jesus rose from the dead choose to remain agnostic on the question. Rather than trying to defend some kind of naturalistic theory, which you'll see is very, very hard to do, they'll just say, we don't know what happened, right? That's not an acceptable option. It's not acceptable because of how important this question is. Right? We talked about how much this question matters. If Jesus rose from the dead, then Jesus is God, and the Bible is his word, and Christianity is true. You can't just say, I'm not going to give an answer to that. <laughs> but that's, that's what most will choose to do, because the naturalistic uh, alternatives are... Um, very weak, to say the, uh, to say the least. Uh, one scholar, uh, Dr. Davis, says this, or Stephen Davis, I think, uh, says, all of the alternative hypotheses with which I am familiar are historically weak. Some are so weak that they collapse of their own weight once spelled out. The alternative theories that have been proposed are not only weaker, but far weaker at explaining the historical evidence. Um, and like I said, many even critical scholars non-believing scholars, um, uh, or non-believing critical scholars, rather, will not try to defend a particular naturalistic theory, or at least secular scholars prefer to remain agnostic. All right, so what are some of these uh, naturalistic theories? Well, one is that Jesus never actually died. 
So this is called the apparent death hypothesis. Sometimes it's called uh, the swoon theory. Um, it's the idea that Jesus didn't die on the cross. Maybe he looked like he was dead. Maybe he was in a coma or something. And he revived in the tomb, somehow broke his way out, and appeared to the disciples. And the disciples thought he had risen from the dead. Okay, that's the apparent death hypothesis. What's wrong with this theory? Number one, it's medically impossible. Okay, it's medically impossible to survive crucifixion. Actually, so some of, uh, for, for these two theories, I'm going to be pulling from uh, Craig's work. He has a couple great videos on this, by the way, if you want to look up alternative resurrection theories online. Um, it was medically impossible, number one. The Romans were uh, professionals at killing people. Um, and uh, crucifixion was so, it was so excruciating. Um, the thought of somebody somehow surviving that is implausible. But they were also tortured, scourged, beaten so severely before crucifixion that even if Jesus somehow survived, it's very likely that he would have died from his wounds in the tomb. That's interesting. In, uh, in Habermas's book, he talked about, uh, he said, quote, in March 21st, uh, or in the March 21st, 1986 issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association, J-A-M-A, Journal of the American Medical Association, a team of three, including a pathologist from Mayo Clinic, studied the procedures of scourging and crucifixion and their effects on the victim. This is from the article published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Quote, clearly the weight of the historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear thus between his right rib probably perforated not only the right lung, but also the pericardium and heart and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. So medically implausible that Jesus somehow survived crucifixion. But even if he did, let's say that somehow this happened. It was a miracle, not in the normal sense of miracles. It was just something absolutely stupendous. He somehow survived this crucifixion. The Romans somehow missed that he was still alive. If he was somehow able to break out of the sealed tomb and break past the guards who were there, which is also a very difficult obstacle, him appearing to the disciples would have never, ever, ever, ever convinced them that he had gloriously risen from the dead. They would see a man beaten, bloodied, in desperate need of medical care, and that would have in no way convinced them that he had somehow resurrected from the dead, right? And so it's implausible on that ground. Not only is it medically impossible, it also wouldn't have convinced the disciples of resurrection. It might have convinced them that he had somehow survived, but not that he had died and come back to life. Um, but aside from that, it also fails to explain the conversion of Paul, right? Again, that's one of the facts that leads uh, scholars today, many scholars today, to believe that, uh, that early followers of Jesus saw him alive, or at least one, scholar that, or at least one fact that leads some scholars to believe that. Um, it doesn't explain Paul's conversion. Paul believed that he saw a resurrected uh, glorified Jesus, not a beaten, bloodied, half-alive man meeting him on the road to Damascus, right? So, apparent death hypothesis dies a hard death. Medically impossible to survive crucifixion, 
even if Jesus did, it wouldn't have convinced his disciples that he had been raised from the dead, and it does nothing to explain the conversion of Paul. Again, this is a ridiculous hypothesis. I think it was defended at one point, at least by, um, uh, at least by a scholar, some scholars in, in, uh, uh, in the scholarly field, but to, to my knowledge, almost no scholars hold that view today. Um, again, many of the naturalistic hypotheses are extremely weak uh, when we consider their historical plausibility. Um, probably the one, if there is a historical, uh, if there is a naturalistic hypothesis that is more accepted in scholarly circles today, probably the most common one, and according to Habermas, it's still a minority rejoinder. Um, the most common, I think, naturalistic hypothesis is that the disciples' visions of Jesus, the disciples' visions of Jesus were not them actually seeing Jesus bodily alive. They were hallucinations. Disciples were hallucinating. Um, they didn't really see him there. Um, this is a, another very uh, untenable view historically. Um, I'll, just, uh, I'll give you some reasons briefly, and then a couple you can write down there. Um, Habermas just lists kind of in rapid fashion problems with this view. One is that hallucinations are private experiences. While clearly we have strong reasons to assert that groups of people claimed to have seen Jesus. Number two, the disciples' despair indicates that they were not in the proper frame of mind to see hallucinations. Number three, he says perhaps the most serious problem is that there were far too many different times, places, and personalities involved in the appearances to believe that with each of these varying persons and circumstances a separate hallucination occurred borders on credulity. I like the way, the way uh, Craig puts it. He talks about how Jesus appeared not just at one time, but on multiple different times to people. Not just at one place, but in multiple different places. Not just to one person, but to many different people. Not just to individuals, but to groups. And not just to believers, but to unbelievers. Paul and James, specifically. As he says, nothing in our psychological casebooks could possibly make sense of hallucinations on that scale. Nothing can make sense of the resurrection appearances that we see in Scripture like that. Too many times, places, persons, settings, individuals, group, believers, unbelievers, to explain as hallucinations. Habermas continues, he says, hallucinations very rarely transform lives, but we have no records of any of the eyewitnesses recanting their faith. And he says, two other huge problems are the conversions of both Paul and James, neither of whom had a desire to see Jesus. These are just a very few of the serious questions for this alternative view. And he says, all other proposed natural hypotheses have similarly been disproven. Craig adds a few other reasons which I think are helpful. He talked about how hallucinations then would have led them to believe that Jesus had been taken to heaven. The Jewish belief was not that people rose from the dead in the middle of history. They believed in a general resurrection at the end of time where the righteous and the unrighteous were raised together. They did not believe in somebody rising from the dead like that in the middle of history, somebody being gloriously resurrected like that in the middle of history. There's, if they did have hallucinations of Jesus, it wouldn't have led to the conclusion that Jesus was resurrected. It would have led to the conclusion that Jesus had been taken to heaven. And also in the ancient world, visions of the deceased were not evidence that somebody was alive, 
they were evidence that somebody was dead and had passed into the afterworld. So again, there's so many problems with the hallucination hypothesis. If you write down just one, let it be the fact that Jesus' appearances occurred at too many times, too many places, too many different persons, to individuals and to groups, to believers and to unbelievers. That's probably the single greatest problem with this theory. The others are important too, though. You can also add, if you want to add one more reason, as Craig put it, that if they had hallucinations, the conclusion wouldn't have been resurrection. It would have been Jesus was taken to heaven or that he was dead and was in the ancient world. Visions like that were evidence that somebody was dead and had moved on to the afterworld. So resurrection would not be the conclusion of a hallucination. All right, so those are two naturalistic theories. Again, you'll see why many scholars today will choose to remain agnostic on the question rather than trying to defend that all of these people at all these different places and times were having hallucinations, rather than trying to defend that somehow Jesus survived crucifixion, they'll just say, we don't know what happened, right? Those other alternatives are not, they're not uh, very defensible, uh, defen defensible historically. Which leaves us with the other option, that what the disciples think they saw, they actually saw. There's the resurrection hypothesis, which is that Jesus actually rose from the dead, right? Again, if miracles are possible, then that is a possible explanation. Not only should we not rule it out, but when we consider all the naturalistic ways we could explain this, maybe he didn't die. Maybe he appeared to them, but he appeared to them not physically raised from the dead, but in a hallucination of sorts. Um, that option stacks up much better than those and makes the best sense, the best sense of the fact that enjoys almost universal consensus today among scholars that the early disciples genuinely believed they saw Jesus rise from the dead. What's the best explanation of that? It's not that Jesus survived crucifixion. It's not that they were having hallucinations. It's that they actually saw Jesus bodily risen from the dead. That's the best explanation. The best historical explanation. You don't have to believe the Bible's God's word to arrive at that explanation. You don't even have to believe, again, that the New Testament documents are generally reliable historically. That fact, again, accepted almost universally today, is enough to lead to the conclusion that the resurrection is the best historical explanation of what took place after Jesus' death. And again, why does that matter? It matters, number one, because that would be a miracle validating Jesus as a true messenger of God. And it matters, number two, because it means that if God raised Jesus, he wasn't a blasphemer. He was telling the truth. He was who he said he was. He was God in the flesh, and what he said is true. Habermas said, excitingly, although they, although the um, he says, uh, I have to rephrase it a little bit to make sense for you. He said, excitingly, although we have not seen the resurrected Jesus, believers today have the next best thing, very powerful evidence that the disciples did. And that's true. It's actually one of the same things that the early church had to go on. The disciples saw Jesus alive. We have very powerful evidence 
the disciples saw Jesus alive. This fact is agreed on almost universally today, and this fact is best explained by the resurrection. Naturalistic alternatives fail miserably. Like I said, one of the reasons why I find this such a compelling argument is because this fact is very, very, very difficult, I would say impossible to explain in any kind of naturalistic way. All right, what questions do you have on this argument? We've learned now two arguments for the truthfulness of Christianity specifically. One of the reasons why I think this one's helpful is because it's a good argument for evangelism too. You can share it pretty quickly. You can ask, you know, if Jesus was raised from the dead, do you think that that, you know, would be important? Do you think that's significant? Is that a significant question? And if they don't think so, you can explain to them why. And then, of course, ask them, you know, do you think it actually happened? If not, what do you think happened after Jesus died? You can tell them almost all scholars today agree that the early followers of Jesus genuinely believed that they saw him alive. Whether they're a Christian scholar or a secular scholar, it doesn't matter. There's almost universal consensus on that. What's the best explanation for it? It's not that Jesus survived the cross. That's medically impossible. Even if he did, it wouldn't have convinced his disciples that he had risen from the dead. It's not hallucinations because these appearances occurred not just at one time, but at many times, many different places, to many different people, individuals, groups, believers, unbelievers. We can't make sense of that with hallucinations. So what is the best explanation of it? The best explanation of it is that the disciples actually saw what they thought they saw, Jesus alive from the dead. All right, any questions? Any objections? Can you think of any objections to this argument? Think of an objection. It's okay if you... Better to think of something now and discuss it together, increase your confidence, know how to respond to it if you hear it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that's actually the, that's the mainstream Muslim view. There's a lot of different interpretations of that passage in the Quran, which says that Jesus was neither killed nor was he crucified, um, that he was made to look like he was crucified. And, uh, and some uh, think that, yes, Jesus was substituted for somebody else, Judas, on the cross. I think that's the most, the substitution theory is the most common in Muslim circles. Um, the uh, um, other Muslims, uh, some other Muslims, um, or people that call themselves Muslims at least, might say that Jesus never actually um, died on the cross. So some form of the apparent death hypothesis or the swoon theory. Um, we've already talked about why that second one fails. The first one also fails because it's one of the most universally recognized facts about the person of Jesus that he was actually crucified on the cross. And as we talked about, um, there is no surviving that crucifixion. The, uh, the Muslim rejoinder, I think, uh, comes either from... Uh, um, drawing from much later sources, or, uh, or perhaps might be found. I, I want to say it's not only in the Quran. I think, I think it's from, I think it's from other, uh, some other later source that they draw that from. But um, again, if you, ask, if, if you want to go with what the, uh, the, um, the, majority, the vast majority of critical scholars agree with today, is that Jesus actually died on the cross. And then, of course, his disciples believe they saw him again after that. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, Ruth. I don't know of any uh, archaeological finds, if, if that's what you're referring to, of like, you know, uh, 
criminal records or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know of anything, anything like that. Yeah, um, there's uh, obviously you have uh, the gospel accounts, which attest to that. The early church, which attests to that. Um, even that early creed that I talked about that goes back even to within the first few years of the crucifixion, talk about that. Um, and uh, and um, I, like I, I think I'd said, almost all scholars agree that Jesus did die by crucifixion um, for various reasons and come to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. was studying to prepare to teach this this uh, the series has been helpful for me because you know obviously when we're out doing evangelism with people we use apologetic arguments and uh, the way that I've shared the resurrection argument in the past I don't think I will share again um, I used to use another fact I used to appeal to the empty tomb of Jesus uh, which is a fact that according to Habermas about 75% of critical scholars recognize but as I was reading more uh, into some of his research and preparing for this um, you know, obviously, most of the scholars in in uh, in the uh, you know in, in the realm that deal with you know the historicity of the resurrection are Christian scholars, right? And I think he said that the ratio is probably around three to one in terms of you know religious or Christian uh, moderately conservative scholars to skeptical scholars, and uh, and so 75% finding you know the uh, the empty tomb to be a uh, a, 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 a a fact that can be you know well established. Um, on, on historical grounds, it's, uh, it's still good. And obviously, just because somebody's Christian doesn't mean that they can you know, find good historical grounds for accepting it. But from, you know, from, from the sake of, uh, as we talked about at the very beginning, one of the things that makes an argument good is not only that it's valid and sound, but it's also persuasive, right? And so if, uh, if um, it seems like, I don't know for sure, it seems like most of the scholars who would affirm that the tomb was empty would probably be Christian scholars. And so if we want our argument to be the most persuasive possible, then we can just use the facts that are accepted by almost everyone, whether they're Christian or secular. And this is one. And I think that this is a fact that's strong enough, compelling enough in and of itself to, uh, to demonstrate that the resurrection is the best explanation for what happened after Jesus died. Um, so change the way that I do, uh, that, that I will probably be using this argument in the future with people. Any other questions, objections? My goodness, we did not get to the review game. Well, I promise, oh, I, I said the last time, I shouldn't promise anymore because if I can't keep my promises, then that's bad. Um, next time, next time we are going to do one session. We're going to probably learn just very briefly some new material. The rest of it will be um, solidifying what we've learned in the past. So if you're not fully confident on the other arguments that we've already discussed, um, we'll solidify those next time. Um, bring your handouts next time. If you have things that aren't filled in, we can fill them in while we're here. Um, and it'll be a very good opportunity to, to really internalize 
um, and digest more of what we've learned. Um, but we'll also talk briefly about uh, just some of the art to having these kind of conversations with people, how to do apologetics well um, in, uh, in the course of your you know, interactions and dialogues with people in your life who don't believe. So, um, But anyway, uh, uh, it was, uh, if you have any other questions or objections, you can come talk to me afterwards. We'll pray, and then uh, the rest of you can leave if you want. All right, Father, thank you so much for this night. We uh, pray that you would be pleased, uh, that you were pleased in our study this evening. I ask that you would help, uh, help make us the best defenders of, uh, of the truth possible. We know that you've been raised from the dead because we've experienced that resurrection in our own life as well. And in that sense, we are, uh, we, we, uh, we are witnesses to your resurrection. Um, but we're also, Father, uh, we want to be able to help uh, persuade those people of the truth who haven't had that uh, same experience. And we pray that you would, uh, that you would help us uh, be effective at using arguments like this uh, to demonstrate the truthfulness of what we believe uh, to those in our lives who don't recognize that it's true yet. And we pray that you would be glorified not only in our ministry to people, uh, but also in them becoming uh, convinced of the truth and following after you too. And we pray these things, Father, for your glory and, uh, and trust in your spirit to accomplish it. Amen.